0: Let me ask you this evening to turn, if you would, to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. thought it's fitting that the hundredth psalm was requested this evening. Certainly that call to worship fits in with the theme of this psalm, and I trust some of our theme as we come to consider the Lord's word tonight. Psalm 84 to the chief musician, upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Amen. We trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's bow our heads together. We are grateful tonight to sing together the praises of a God who is worthy the praises of a God who has purposed from eternity to pour out the riches of grace upon the undeserving. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our God justifies the ungodly. Lord, it is only in the cross of Christ that you can be just And the justifier. And yet in that cross. In the person and work of the second person of our triune God. You are just. And yet justifying sinners. And so give us again this day. Lord in this Sabbath evening hearts to reflect on what we've already read. And Lord yet challenge us again tonight as we come to the close of this another Sabbath. Lord, forgive us for our sins, and Lord, if we would count among them the many times and ways in which we dishonor this day, well, it is as we find in so many other things, if thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand But you have given us this day to delight in? And we pray that you might even increase that delight, perhaps even with conviction tonight. Lord, deal with us. Help us to be, with the help of your Spirit, more and more cut off from the influences, the distractions, and the outright ungodliness of our age. Lord, we can easily speak of the power of, with which these temptations and allurements are brought to us in these days. And yet all the means of modern technology don't overwhelm the word. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so we pray for your spirit that can speak words preachers never can. Can convince our hearts in ways that We would not think we could be convinced. So grant tonight that help that we need. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I'd like this evening to read to you as we begin a chapter from our confession. In many ways tonight, this is the fourth, or is it the fifth? of our studies on the Sabbath day and these opening Sabbath evenings of the year. I've been reading again. It's been a long time since I read this little volume by Daniel Wilson. I want to read a paragraph from him tonight as well. The sermon, the message that he brought, the fifth in his series, was really one of entirely application. And that is, in the main, what we will pursue this evening But I want to, in reading tonight from our confession, I was tempted to read his message tonight, to be quite honest. I'm just going to read his opening paragraph. But one of the things that I find challenging and very, very often convicting is to read the opinions, to read the convictions, to read the actions of those that have gone before, and to think of how small our reverence is, how small our worship is, how small our godliness is, how easily contented we are with just meager representations of our service and our our conviction. The chapter that is in our confession, chapter 21, is entitled of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. I'm sure many of you, perhaps most of you are familiar with it, it's probably been Touched upon read, there have been catechism questions, obviously, that flow from it, and those scripture proves that I trust are regularly being put before us. But to read of these, this collection of, I've always wondered where the practice of calling the men such as the framers of the confession divines came from, you could get into where titles such as reverend and so forth came from. We'll leave those off. But these that so gave themselves, one spoke of the day in which they lived. Uh, Was it something of like the noonday of gospel light? You think of the, the decades that had passed since the Reformation, the rediscovery of Scripture, really, and of the gospel itself. And how it so changed the world. But their mature meditations, a, a confession, a doctrinal statement that has stood the test of time, not merely decades, but centuries, it testifies in its own way to the scripturalness of these statements. But just listen to me, if you would, for a moment or two of the paragraphs of this chapter. And then I want to turn our thoughts to some application this evening. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone. "...not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone." Prayer, with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will." with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Let me just pause. I know we emphasize this along the way, but just to be reminded, our prayers again, we may pray to direct worship toward all three persons of the Godhead, but only the second person is our mediator. We pray in the name of the Son. It is through the Son that we approach unto God. The fourth paragraph. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those to whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. The reading of the Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the Word, In obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Besides religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons, to be used in a holy and religious manner. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is, now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by His Word or Providence calleth thereunto. As it is of the law of nature, that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in His Word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and wholly rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Well, that is chapter 21 of what we confess together in the worship of our god we have over these last lords day evenings been looking at the scripture's teaching with regard to the lord's day we have traversed much territory some of it's been preachy some of it's been teachy to use those phrases what we find in scripture really it's not that complicated the sabbath was a creation ordinance It wasn't given to man as something necessary for him only after the fall. God himself sanctified the seventh day and called upon Adam in the garden to do so. We've seen not only was it a creation ordinance, but as God gave his moral law upon Mount Sinai that the Sabbath day was included in those ten words that were written with the finger of God in the tables of stone. What better and more lofty way to be distinguished from the other laws and ordinances that were given to Israel to use our confessions language as a body politic? No, it was set apart. It was distinct. It is a moral law, not ceremonial. There were ceremonial and civil aspects to Sabbath observance for Israel. Just as we see other portions of the moral law Civil penalties for that nation were based upon that law. Those have passed with Israel as that body politic. We come to the New Testament Scriptures, and we see those portions that are so often lifted up as a release from Sabbath obligation for New Testament saints. And we find that within those particular passages, it is not the weekly Sabbath, but Jewish feast days, Jewish Sabbaths of additional natures that are spoken of there. And of course, in that transition period in the New Testament church, circumcision and other such things posed difficult ground for the early church to walk in. And so it is quite expected and natural that that distinction would need to be made. We found in the Gospels, our Lord defending his disciples not by changing the Sabbath, which is that peculiar blunder that Dabney speaks of with those that handle the passage that way. But no, he was lifting the Sabbath above the traditions of the elders that the Pharisees were upholding. That is, in other cases, often obscured the law rather than making it plain. And for these arguments, will I read you the words of Daniel Wilson here, to open his chapter on practical observations. He says, The divine authority and perpetual obligation of a day of holy rest and religious worship have been abundantly proved. I love this next little phrase. Everything conspires to impress us with its supreme importance to man in all ages and under all dispensations. Such is its antiquity that it was instituted in paradise. Such is its essential moral character that it was inserted in the Ten Commandments. Its dignity is so great that it lifts its head high above the ceremonies of Moses while even under that economy. Such is its spirituality that the holy prophets insisted upon it as a point of fundamental duty and is about to form a part of the gospel kingdom. Its perpetual force and native majesty are so distinguished that our Lord, after explaining what the comments of the Jewish doctors had obscured, leaves it in more than its original glory, transfers the day of its celebration to that of His resurrection, and erects in it a trophy to His victory. Such in a word is its paramount authority upon human conscience that the church in every age, including the apostolic has confessed its claims and made it the occasion of their delight and joy. Those that deny the Lord's Day, I would say, have an insurmountable task in overturning the testimony of church history, as well as overturning the testimony of God's Word. As I said, I want this evening to turn our thoughts to a beginning of practical application. There's one portion of Scripture, the prophet Isaiah, that I want to use perhaps as our concluding observation. I'm not sure. We may spend more than one's Lord's Day evening there. But I just want this evening to pull from some of these brethren of a bygone age. Some of their comments, some of their direction with regard to an overview of the Scripture into the practical ends of the Lord's day. And these are not, as we often find ourselves at the very beginning of such a study, a list of you can do this, you can't do that. I may read you that long quotation again on Sabbath casuistry that has such a focal point on the spirituality of the law of God. But know these chapter headings, if you will, that just would launch us into our own wrestling with the particulars. But some thoughts here with regard to practical observations on the Lord's day. And the first, if you call from such men of bygone days, is the great end to which it has given us. Some even go so far as to use the language that it is a sign of the covenant of grace. It is a picture of the relationship between the Lord and His people. And you see, certainly that applies as the Lord speaks to Israel having brought them out of Egypt. And you remember those two times, first in Exodus where creation is commemorated, then the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy as we found where the Exodus, that great Old Testament type of redemption, is commemorated. And there's a growth with every republishing, if you will, of the teaching of this day. Because as we saw on our last occasion, the change from the last day of the week into the first, of course commemorating now the work of the new creation from which our Lord has rested. In pursuing the great end then of this day, we are by following this observance, marking ourselves as the Lord's people. And that will become more evident as we proceed. But here, this is something that belongs to us. It belongs to those who belong to Him. Who can cast off any of God's law? Willfully, openly, And still claim to belong to Him. I know there are many that fight against it that are true believers. I understand those things. But it is an imperfection of teaching that has really severe consequences if we're mindful of them. The great end here, marking us as God's own. But consider with me if you would, The public and private duties of the day. What is the Lord's Day? We use the New Testament terminology for the Christian Sabbath. What is the Lord's Day? Just as it was for Israel in the days in which national Israel represented the visible church in the world. So now the visible church spread into all the nations of the Gentiles throughout the world. It is a day of worship. We've seen the New Testament pattern. We've seen the consistency and the explicit references of the people gathering for worship and all the accoutrement parts of public worship of our corporate assemblies happening on the first day of the week. It is the day for the public exercise of the worship of God. Imagine, if you will, if it were true What some of the opponents of the Lord's Day suggest that in the New Testament it was enough, many of these say, for God's people to have one day of worship in the old, but now we're in the fuller dispensation, the church age. We worship God every day. Did they not worship God every day then too? Dispensationalism always messes up the gospel. I believe for most unintentionally, but yet doctrinally it does. No man among the strictest Sabbatarians would suggest that New Testament believers aren't to worship God every day. But a day set aside for the public exercises of the worship of God. If this were not marked in God's Word, if it were not so clearly understood and practiced by the church in all the ages, what confusion would exist When each individual congregation would have to decide what day and what time they would gather for public worship as they're commanded in God's Word. What are the people within that congregation that disagreed about Tuesday versus Thursday? When and where would they gather? To whom would they attach themselves? When you think of the public worship of God, And we think of that in certain contexts. Think of the public exercises of worship. The things that we benefit from. The public reading of Scripture. I hope as we speak of it and even preface or conclude our public readings with that command and yet privilege that we're given to give attention to reading the preaching of the gospel, for the edifying of saints, for the evangelizing of the lost. It is in the public assembly that we experience this, that we practice this, that we seek this out, that we call others to it. The Lord's day is a day set aside for that corporate assembly. For the singing of praise, public testimony and song. All the benefits that we receive, we receive in corporate worship. And we have a day set aside for these assemblies that is the Lord's day. Without the day, the structure, the season, the intervals between and for these assemblies is lost. Well, I say we can think about the benefits of public worship, of corporate worship and assembly, and these and other things, the sacraments, the pursuit of the means of grace in every way. But think of it also from the standpoint of testimony to those that are outside. That's a simple thing. But I challenge you to think it through. If we as the Lord's people treat the Lord's day as any other day. If there is no obligation. If there is no divine pattern. Where is our corporate testimony? Where will it be? And I ask you honestly to search your heart and search your world. Where's the testimony of the church today? I have felt since the very earliest days of my ministry that one of the many obstacles to faithful gospel ministry in this day is overcoming a lack of credibility that the visible church has in our generation. There's been so much folly So much sin, so much abandonment of truth. You can hardly meet anyone inside the church or outside that doesn't have a horror story or two or three to tell of things that have transpired in the visible church. And I say, among the many ways in which we can sadly confess this reality, where is the church's testimony? when it comes to the Lord's day? Or is this just another way in which the world looks at the professing church, it looks at professing Christians, and sees yet again no or little difference between the world and the church? If the things that captivate the world throughout the rest of the days of the week, or if in the evolution of our nation the things that captivate the attention of the world on the Lord's Day. I remember many a Lord's Day morning, in the early days. We've had a little bit of that this week, and taking care of grandchildren of younger years. In the early days, when ours were little, I would rise early on the Lord's Day and, I don't know, grab whatever sandwich or, Sustenance was there, and come here, it was a quieter place. And I remember coming down the interstate, coming into town from the west, from Clemens, and seeing sometimes those early Sabbath mornings, the vehicles going west, carrying boats, bicycles, kayaks, All kind of gear. Just having the thought, you know, it's interesting. You can almost tell what someone worships by what they spend their time doing on the Lord's Day. Where is the church's testimony today? We can name a lot of other areas to be sure. But let us not leave out the observance of the Lord's day. There are a host of other things we could attach to this aspect, but in the practical outworking of the Lord's day, all the benefits as well as the obligations that attach to the public exercises of the worship of God. But also the older divines would mention as they speak of public and private duties the care of our families. It is sadly something lost to many in the modern church. It's often called under the name the family altar. But a season each day in which fathers would gather the families around the word. We encourage you if you have or don't have a copy of the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. The notes and the help for family worship that are given in that study Bible are really remarkable. And if you see comments there, even about the different ages of children and being perhaps simple and brief at times, and in other days of greater maturity, you can take family worship on the regular days of the week to greater depths and greater time but the care of our families many would speak of the care of our inferiors I don't know how many of you not aware of any that have servants living in the home if you do let me know we may borrow them sometime but if they're available for such things but Scripture has a lot to say with regard to those that are in our care. Scripture speaks about not only ourselves but our children and our our servants. Our maid servants and men servants. One of the things that I've heard many that argue against sabbath observance is that well we make use of the labors of others on the Lord's day. Well, I may talk a little more about this in a later study, but I find it very interesting that the excuse for personal rest that would lean upon obliging others to even greater labors on this day may be somewhat hypocritical if we ask them to join us in corporate worship and they don't have the ability because of the services they're rendering to all of God's people that leave God's house and require their services, care of our families and care of those that depend upon us. Personal and private duties. We can engage in the care of our families. We can engage in the public gatherings of the worship of God. And yet if we've not prepared our own hearts, if we don't understand the spirituality of the things that we would ask of our families and the things that we would seek to engage in in God's house and we haven't prepared in the privacy of our own thoughts of setting aside some extra care in the worship and the things of God, our personal and private duties are going to be foundational to the actual performance of these others duties. And so to be jealous for the exercise of these things. One, I was reading spoke of the spirit then in which we engage these duties. And here's where again I just put before you the spirituality of the law. I know there are other places where evangelicals that are not reformed look at us and our view of the moral law and they would cry legalism. We heard that abundantly some years ago speaking about the second commandment and actors portraying our Lord and so forth. But perhaps it's nowhere voiced more, can we say vociferously, the charge of legalism than when it comes to the Lord's day. And yet really, are we to put that charge to any proper observance of any part of God's law? Was Christ a legalist in performing perfectly all that the law required? Is a husband or wife a legalist if they remain faithful to their spouse? Oh, don't want legalists. Well, maybe we'll let that one Well. Oh, but we'll put the charge at some other portion of God's law that we deem ourselves worthy to judge and change. But the practical observations of the day, and I hasten here to close, the things we've seen already in Scripture and observed. If we see creation... The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God Himself paused to reflect upon what He had created, that it was very good. Man is the image bearer of God, to reflect Him, to be His regent over the rest of creation, that eighth psalm, and the reflections on it in Hebrews 2, so foundational. But then we see, in the type in the Old Testament, And the reality in the new that the Lord's day is a commemoration of redemption as well as and beyond the creation ordinance. The type Israel reflecting on its exodus from Egypt and the Passover. And of course the New Testament, the fulfillment of that Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Even that change of the day to commemorate His victory as we read. We commemorate redemption. And as we saw in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, anticipating heaven itself, the eternal Sabbath. To spend time in the day commemorating the things it's designed to help us remember. You think of the devotional value of meditating creation, of what God's purposes were, of how He fashioned us, again, read and understand that eighth Psalm. And then to consider the awfulness of the fall and everything we've learned in our opening studies in the book of Romans. Romans. And that God purposed to save us when we had so ruined ourselves and brought his curse upon creation itself. To remember a risen Christ. To have a day that God has ordained, set aside from the distraction. Think of the distractions of life in this fallen world. The frustrations of life in this fallen world, the thorn that appears upon every rose, the sweat that accompanies labor in a fallen world, in a fallen community, to remember redemption. And then, of course, to commemorate heaven where the full experience of that redemption will be brought to pass. And we will, having regained everything the first man lost and more in the second man. Do you look at this world through godly eyes as something you yearn to be released from? You know, that's a distinguishing difference between the unsaved and the saved. They're content and want to pursue the pleasures of the curse. Those that are redeemed see the curse and see its impact and the misery it's brought upon us as something to be delivered from. We're going to read in Romans 8 powerful, precious words about the creation itself groaning and travailing together, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies, where we bear still so much of the curse of sin. To have a day which is best we are enabled and directed by our God so order our affairs to set aside the distractions of this fallen world and have as part of our meditations the world to come. The world that has been subjected unto Christ. Man was made for a little while lower than the angels, but sin before he had attained that position at God's right hand. We don't see yet all things put under Him. But we see Jesus. He took into union with Himself our nature. He Himself was made for a little while lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. That He by the grace of God might taste death for every man. That He might bring many sons to glory. And we await that day. A day that is guaranteed in the resurrection. And that's why the day has moved to this first day of the week. Practically speaking, the things commemorated, creation, redemption, heaven. Can we not be occupied meditations upon these things while we would set aside the distractions the things of the curse well I trust we will come to flesh out some of these thoughts a little further as I said I want to come Lord willing in our next study to the 58th chapter of Isaiah there's really a pinnacle of spiritual and yet practical admonition there with regard to Sabbath-keeping and calling this day a delight. What a different picture. What a different picture than the flesh would paint of it. Well, I appreciate your patience tonight in reading some of these more extended things. But I trust that you will ask the Lord magnify for us both corporately in our homes and individually the practical observation, the practical enjoyment, the practical improvement of the Lord's day for spiritual benefits flow from its observance. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Lord, we come and ask that you will prosper these thoughts, Lord, these observations that flow from the things we've found in the Word already. Lord, we confess it's contrary to the age, even among your people. We've recently read in Nehemiah and seen how the people of days gone by struggled. It is not an uncommon struggle. But, O Lord, we pray that You'll give us victories in it. Persuade us afresh of the benefits and joys of the Lord's day. Let us be those people that are glad upon its return. And not like those the prophet laments... To say when will the Sabbath be gone? That we can get back to the things we really enjoy. What does it save us if we prefer the things of the curse to meditating on the things of glory? Lord, work in us, we pray, these needed and very spiritual things. We ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.